0: You may or may not have seen it, but it's uh, one of my favorite movies. It's called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Do I have anybody? I can tell the ones who've seen it because they're chuckling already. It's one of those really, really funny movies. By the way, my saying its name does not make it pure as the driven snow. I just want to be sure that you don't assume that. But it has these wonderful scenes. It's about two families from two very different cultures. And yes, one of them's Greek, and one of them's very, uh, let's just say, northeastern American kind of thing like that. Uh, and and they have very different ideas about what family's about. You have these two scenes: one where he will take her; she's the Greek one. She, he will take her home for a family dinner, and it's his mother and his father and she and he sitting around a table, very quiet. Very little conversation going on, a little bit of, you know, chatter, just start a conversation. Only one person talks at a time. And for many people, everybody sees that and says, that's just such a beautiful picture of family. And then you know what happens. She takes not only him, but his mother and father to meet her family which extends to every single aunt, uncle, and cousin for about five generations on every side. You don't wait to get inside the house to be welcomed because there is a a lamb out on a live fire spit in the front yard. And as soon as they drive up and get out of the door, probably 40 people come running down the, 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 the front yard, the lawn, to the street to greet them. To say that it's overwhelming is uh, an an extreme understatement. The only thing I don't really like about the movie as far as the illustration for today's sermon is the idea that when we come to the wedding, it's all Greek. And by the way, it's more fun because it's all Greek, right? Somebody say amen. But it, it doesn't let the other family, the other entity, have much room to be part of what's going on. And when we come to the unity that is found in the great diversity that is the church, it is not that we want everyone to be uniform. We don't want to make everybody like some one particular pattern. Instead, we want to appreciate where everybody comes from. We want to have times in our, in our worship services where we're quiet and meditative. We also want to have times in our worship service where we celebrate and it's loud and it's noisy. And maybe even there's more than one person talking at the same time because children are having a conversation with parents and adults are having conversations across pews. Now, don't hear me say that we're supposed to sort of violate Paul's idea of everything decently and in order. Because if there's anything that we've probably... I don't know if you know this idea or not, but mountain climbers are tied together with a rope. And if you are walking down a ridge and somebody falls off one side of the ridge, guess what your job is to do? To jump off the other side. To keep them from tumbling. Because you're not going to be able to hold two or three guys falling on that side. But if you jump off the other side of the cliff, you can both climb back to the top and maybe we all live. Who knows, you're mountain climbing, you, you don't have any guarantees at that point. If there is any way in which we as a church have decided to jump on the other side of the cliff to make sure that nothing like that boisterousness ever happens, we have taken that scripture and run with it and jumped off the other side of the cliff. Somebody say amen to me. To be a little boisterous when I ask for an amen, when I'm making a point about how quiet and sedate we are, means means that you need to give me a big amen. I'll take your laughter as the best amen that I'm going to get today. Our fellowship as a church doesn't look a whole lot like the first century church. We are here not in a big formal cathedral, but instead we're here in what's considered a very casual kind of setting. But it is very comfortable. And it is still very much like an audience participating in an in a, a event. The first century church was also not at all like these big huge cathedrals that we see in Europe. Some places in America. Um, some places in, in other parts of the world. But largely that's not what the first century would have been about. There wasn't anybody who had money for that. Number one. Number two... They didn't see church, and I'm going to use that word again, church that is the fellowship in that way. Nor, by the way, on the other hand, was it some sort of, now there were times of persecution, but it wasn't always this little small tiny group of people sitting around one table in the dark making sure that no neighbors heard what they were doing for fear of the authorities coming to get them. That was not the picture either, typically, although we know that there were times when the church was persecuted. Instead, the church was about a group of people that met at a home. Hopefully you had someone in your community that was wealthy enough to have a home large enough to be sort of a a Hellenistic or, or Roman villa that had multiple rooms and courtyards and those kinds of things. That seems to be what the archaeology points to is that they would meet in these homes and enjoy fellowship together. And it was always, we have first and second century testimony from people who wrote about what happened, about the way it was centered around a meal. As opposed to trying to to put together my own, I found in Scott McKnight's book, A Fellowship of Difference, a place where he kind of takes all of the the human elements, the anthropology, the archaeology, and the biblical evidence and brings them together into the story. It'll take me three or four minutes to read this, but I hope that it engages you in thinking about what that first church was like. Imagine going to church in the first century if you were in a major Roman city such as Rome or Ephesus or Pompeii. You'd leave your home and walk in your leather sandals or maybe barefoot through the city on paved roads. But the pavers in your city are large stone blocks, not as smooth or as square as the ones we find in our driveways or walkways today. And it is hard not to stumble and stub your toe or trip. You enter a house where everyone gathers and you immediately encounter some church kids playing hide and seek. That would never happen in our settings, I know. Someone's slave passes you you with a spit of some already roasted meat dangling on the end. And I think about when we used to have fellowship Sundays, and every once in a while the smell of the food would drift far enough down that hall that you're like, would they please get to the closing prayer quickly? You also see that the household's former shrine to Apollo has been desecrated. Better yet, it's been liberated from idols. You walk through an atrium where an evening sun gently falls on you. And then a few steps beyond the atrium, you enter into a large room where others are sitting. Some lounge on the floor while others are on sofas with pillows. Some, someone, a slave, is fanning what appears to be an important leader. It is the elder who has a small scroll open. And he's chatting with somebody about what it says. Outside the room on the veranda are low tables. And some have already taken their seats for dinner. There are flasks of wine and some pots of water and some trays of food, chicken and fish, and some veggies and some baked bread. There you sit at table, eating next to a Roman magistrate whom you had not met other than in a legal case some time back. But he doesn't remember you. He does greet you with a handshake and a kiss on the cheek. You also meet a young Jewish man who not only follows the Torah, but believes in Jesus. And you observe that he's eating what he calls kosher. Across the room, you observe a slave, instead of serving others, is sitting next to a Roman citizen. And you can tell their different statuses immediately by the clothing that they are wearing. And they're praying together with their hands clasped. The conversation is going wonderful with others around you when someone, the elder, stands up and says a prayer to lead the group into the Lord's Supper. The elder reads from the great apostle who has been to this city some years back, and what he reads about is Jesus' betrayal and death and the resurrection to the throne of God. You hear about bread and body and about wine and blood, and then he passes bread and wine around the room. You snap off some bread, knead it, and then take a deep gulp of wine. You pass these to the magistrate next to you, and the table grows silent. The elder speaks about the cup and announces it is God's love and grace, God's yes for everyone. The elder makes it clear that Roman ways stop at the door, and that everyone, men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Greeks, and rich and poor, are all in one family in Christ. The elder then says, this Passover meal cup is a cup of thanksgiving, and that by drinking from that cup, each person is participating in the death of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah who can liberate the Romans, the people that live around them. And you realize how personal this is to you. He then says that eating the bread means you've just partaken in the body Jesus gave for us, a body that made you one, whether you are Made you all one, whether you are Jewish or Roman, man or woman, a slave, or a Roman citizen. When I read that, it was powerful because of the way it tied the elements together. Acts chapter two tells us that eating was at the very core of what the church was. It is interesting when we look at that summary statement from the end, but after Peter's sermon. And after the proclamation to become one with Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection of baptism, he lists some things that went on with the church. And equally listed there with them was to breaking of bread. And there aren't many things. You can look at that passage 42 to 46 that that kind of uh, engage you in what the church was doing. And it's interesting how very little is repeated except that when we come to 46... Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. And we've already talked about breaking bread. They broke bread at home and ate food with glad and generous hearts. So to be the fellowship, to apply what Jesus says we need to be about, then we have to be a people who, we all say, let's eat. Can you say it with me? Let's eat. It would be my hope and my prayer That everything we do in singing our songs together, in reading from Scripture, in participating in being led in prayer but praying together, even the presentation of the Word of God would point us toward a time that we say over and over and over again, let's eat, let's eat, let's eat. Because you're pointing to Jesus and I want to participate with Jesus. Now, see, the eating isn't just about a participation in the Lord's Supper. Because when you look at the Bible, almost from the very first page and definitely all the way through the end of what Scripture reveals for us, it is constantly about people sitting down to eat together. Abraham invites the strangers to sit and eat, and he hears about the birth of a son. It is the Israelites who, in their first really quote, church service together will slaughter a lamb and put its bud on the lentils of the house and within 24, 36 hours they are out of Egypt and about to cross the Red Sea. They remember that over and over again and as you read the Old Testament, maybe not as often as we would like, but there are these memories of the Passover, there are memories of the Feast of Tabernacles, there are memories of the Day of Atonement. Echoing and everything to do. And all of those events are tied around sitting down to eat together. And then the prophets begin to cast a vision. A vision how God is preparing a great banquet. A great banquet that he will attend and invite you to come to. A great banquet where there will be no one will lack for anything and the very best of everything will be served. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And not that we have a dinner at his birth, at least it's not recorded for us. But fairly quickly as Jesus' ministry gets started, we have the wedding feast at Cana. We have Jesus going to the homes of, quote, tax collectors and sinners to eat. We have Jesus going and eating at Mary and Martha's house, where Mary is partaking of the bread of Christ and Martha is preparing the bread that they will all eat together. He then gets to the end of his ministry. And when you read John, you recognize that John isn't going to tell us the story in detail about the, the Last Supper, but instead he wants to add one more dimension and says, It is at the meal that Jesus washes their feet and says, I want you to go and do likewise. I want you to serve one another. But I think also included in that statement is that I want you to gather people to a table together. And here it is that the church begins and they understand that one of the key things that they need to do is to gather together and break bread together and enjoy food and fellowship together because they're doing what Jesus did when he ended his ministry and they're doing what God is going to make a reality when Jesus comes back again. Somebody say, Amen. There are very few things. No, that's not true. There's a long laundry list of things that I miss, but one very high on the list of of things that I miss during this quarantine time is our fellowship meals and and I love our fellowship meals because even though I don't know if you know it or not, but i I have these these angels that prepare a plate for me um, that that I get to take home and and you get to eat it hot and I get to eat it cold but or microwaved, or whatever you want to call it. But I still get a taste of some of the most wonderful things I love. There are two or three people who, who always come up and say, now, did you try my? And I love it. Because even though, by the way, if I tried a lot of everything you said I ought to try, I would be larger than I am, and I'm not small. But I want, you, wanna have a, you want me to have a taste of what you've prepared, and I want to taste, I want to eat even if we don't sit at the table together, even if we're not face-to-face, when I partake of what you've prepared, I am, in, I am eating with you and enjoying that time together. And the food is great, but that's not the most wonderful thing. It's actually the devotional that the preacher does at the end. That's the most wonderful thing of the whole, whole thing that goes on. No, it's a little bit like the Mary and Martha story. The food is wonderful, but the people are better. The food fills us up temporarily. The people, the fellowship that we enjoy together. And what I love is that it, it just seems unlike sort of when we come into the auditorium, although I have to say I'm thrown off today. Nesbits are on the wrong side of the room, and, and some of you have moved to the back, and some of you have moved to the front, and all those kinds of things, but... Uh, It it gets a little crazy every once in a while. But what I notice is that when we go to the fellowship meal, there's no assigned seating. Somebody say amen. That everyone has someone come and sit with them. And I particularly love that if a stranger is there, it seems that it just kind of serves as a magnet to attract people. And all are blessed. And all get to partake. And... Callan ran off, where'd Callan, there he is, he was hiding. And Callan gets to go back for as many desserts as he wants to go back for. And Callan says, yeah, okay. (laughs) By the way, Callan, I also go back for a bite of many, many different desserts because they're so wonderful. Let's eat. You say, but how can that be connected to the fellowship that represents the gospel? I want to visit two scriptures and I'm going to do this more quickly than they deserve but I think I need to make the point the way scripture talks about the point. From Galatians chapter 2 starting with verse 11. When Cephas and Cephas is the Roman way of saying Peter's name. It's another way of stating it but again we're writing to Galatians. I'm going to write it in the, the, the vernacular of the people there. When Cephas came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. I want you to get how important that meal was to what the church was doing. He didn't say Peter went to church somewhere else. He said Peter ate with He used to eat with the Gentiles, but after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. Boy, this argument has developed so long for Paul that he has little titles to give to it. That is to say, people who said you had to become Jewish to follow Christ, therefore, if you were a male, you had to be circumcised so that you could, in the same way that you would be baptized to come to the family of God, you need to be circumcised to be Jewish to come into the family of God. That's the circumcision party. And the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So that even... I think you need to think for a minute how how this would be a knife in Paul's heart. Barnabas who came to Paul and said, I think you can have a place in the ministry of Christ. And now Paul has to call Barnabas out. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Down to verse 14. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before all of them. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now that statement can take a lot of unpacking. But what I want to go back to. I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. You say, what does my eating have to do with the gospel? And I want to affirm that eating has become a different thing in our day and time. It is seldom shared among broad larger family groups and we don't invite people over for for meals the way that we used to and I'm not standing up here and trying to say we need to all start having fellowship meals in our homes every day and all that. It's not what I want to push for but I do think that the company we keep in our lives both at work and in our leisure and our recreation but maybe most of all the company we keep when we are wearing the label of Christ and sitting among God's people and we choose to cut ourselves off for some reason or another because they don't agree with me on some subject. Or I'm not going to sit across from them at a table because, well, they're just a little messier than I want them to be. Or I'm not going to go sit there because I know that they talk All the time. We need to be people who say the truth of the gospel is going to be revealed. in who I'm friends with and who I talk to and who I sit by. And we need to be ready to say that the truth of the gospel is that the gospel is for everyone wherever they come from. The truth of the gospel is expressed in how we eat. I want to skip all the way down to the application, David. Jesus' table of fellowship. Now, make no mistakes, we're about to partake, table's not here, we're about to partake of the table that Jesus invites us to, of the bread that he has given and of the blood that he has given, the cup and the, the small little piece. <laughs> of stuff that's in the top of that cup for you. And you might say, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus' table of fellowship? Yet it is His invitation. And it is a powerful encounter with Him every single week. But make no mistakes, it's bigger than that. Jesus... Table of fellowship needs to be our table of fellowship, and very quickly three things. Jesus's table of fellowship is more about we than it is about me. We need to be very careful when we start making statements about I don't like it that way. We need to think about what is good for the whole, and what's particularly pressing. What I love about the more senior people in this church, the more I get to know them, the more I recognize how much they are vested in the idea that church is not just for them, but it instead it is there for the next generation of folks. The fact that we invest so much in our youth group, the fact that we support our kids in so many different ways, there have never been an event that our youth group needs to go on that this church hasn't come up and said, we will take care of anybody that really wants to go but it's more than that. You see the need for a church that speaks to every generation and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for young people that I meet in this church who respect that the way things happen in the assembly don't need to be just about them. Sometimes it's the way they dress and they choose to dress in a little more formal and more acknowledging of of the way that typically older generations want us to be dressed up a little more because when they go to school, it's shorts and t-shirts for the most part. I appreciate the way that we want to try to get along. But the minute that it starts becoming about what I want, and particularly when all the right answers need to start being sourced in me as opposed to we, then we have left Jesus' table and started sitting with Peter with the circumcision faction. Secondly, and I've made this point over and over again, but it has to be a place of inclusion. And once again, I'm thankful for the way I see more senior than me and younger than me. I'm thankful for the way that I see people with many more uh, earthly riches and wealth and people that have a lot less than I do. And I have never seen this church treat people differently because of any of those status. I want us to think about the way we need to work to be inclusive of those who can't be here during this time of quarantine. Are you making a call? Are you writing a card? Are you showing up at the front door and backing off six or eight feet and greeting them? Are we including those who can't find a way and who feel prevented from being here on a regular basis? Because this is not, if you haven't figured it out already, a short process. We're in this for the long term. And I don't know whether it will be next spring or next summer or next fall or 2022. But we have got to work to include those who can't make it to this assembly. I would also say that when we come to the table of fellowship, we need to look beyond the walls of our own congregation. We need to look to brother and sister congregations in the area. but We also need to look to churches that wear different labels and say we probably have more in common with you at the table than what breaks us apart. Finally, Jesus' table of fellowship is a miracle of the Spirit. You say, how in the world do those people love each other so much? It's not because they're good people. It's because the Spirit has filled them and a miracle is going on every day. Amen? How come everybody seems to be included at that place? And the answer is not, well, they're just extra good and sweet, sweet people. It is that the Spirit has filled them and He is doing a miracle. And I want to tell you that every day that you decide to see the Spirit invade you and do something that's not comfortable or that is kind of breaking down some walls between you and someone else who you think, wow, um, it's going to take a stretch for me to reach that way. Every time you step into that, you are saying yes to what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. And what I want you to know is that every time you have the opportunity to do that, you are opening up the possibility that the Spirit will send someone to you to open up their life to you in a way that is also a miracle. Because ultimately, the miracle is that Jesus came to live among us in flesh and to eat with us at table. James Dunn from a book called The Acts of the Apostles back in the 60s has this quote. The spirit transcends human ability. So whatever kindness is in your heart, whatever sense of compassion to another is there, the spirit transcends that ability and makes it greater. But more importantly, the spirit transforms human inability." Were it not for the Spirit, were it not for you choosing to be someone who invites the Spirit to inhabit you, then what is our fellowship would be less. And the miracle of our fellowship would not bring glory to God, but just be one more testimony to how broken the world is. So let's eat. Let's eat together, but not just us. Let's eat with Jesus. You're going to eat, and I realize there are some people that break this, but they're basically human history has sort of encompassed itself in three meals, right? Start the day with a meal, end the day with a meal, usually something in the middle. You may have developed some other pattern, and that's okay, but I'll bet somewhere in there is kind of three bites. If you're on Adkins, you know it's five bites, but you know the, the second and third are just kind of com, combined with the middle one. So eating is a regular part of who we are. So Jesus says, let's eat. And I think by that he says, let's live. Let's live together. Let's rise together. Let's spend the middle of the day together. And let's close the day out together. This one little taste. Twelve years and you have the habit of being able to point to a table. He has placed this reminder... And it's not a reminder that, hey, guess where I get to go have supper? It's a reminder that he says, come to my table. If you need to do something today to reaffirm that commitment to Jesus, there are people here that want to help you, pray with you, hear your story. Help in any way they can. If you're online and want to get a message to us so that we can start a conversation about how you can begin that living, eating, all the time with Jesus, the number is there and you're welcome to send us a message. We will respond. I invite you to come eat together at the table that Christ invites us all to. Why not you come? As we stand and as we sing, this is the season for a new anointing. This is the season for a fresh and cold.